I am excited about taking us through the conclusion of chapter 1 of the book of Philippians. If you're uh, newer with us this morning, one, we thank you for being here to worship with us, and two, we want to let you know we are uh, in a summer series entitled Joyride as we are studying through the book of Philippians. We call it Joyride because Philippians is known as the letter of joy. As Paul is uh, under house arrest, chained to a Roman soldier 24 hours a day, seven days a week, he writes a letter of incredible encouragement to the Christians at that time in the city of Philippi, but left for us today to bring joy and encouragement to us. And so Paul has been talking through this first part of uh, chapter one about joy in adversity. And he's been explaining somewhat how he's had joy and found joy in all of his adversities. And, and this morning, he gets a little more personal. We're going to pick up in, cha- in verse, chapter 1, verse 27, and we're going to, to finish the chapter this morning. And then these next four verses, Paul gets a little more direct and a, and a little more pointed, personal to the Christians in Philippi and to, to you and I today. He's really going to address the issue of persecution. Now, he's been already addressing adversity. And now he's going to talk about when that adversity turns to be more of a personal affront to your faith. Adversity could be anything. You could have a a financial situation that's adverse. You could have a a health issue that's adverse. But but persecution has to do with uh, the suffering for the gospel, the suffering for your faith that you have as a follower of Christ. Now, again, the kid's sermon was a whole lot more entertaining than this one's going to be. I have wrestled through this week of making sure I've got some clarity on where Paul is going with this. And, and I think the Holy Spirit's helped me to get some understanding that I want to, to share with uh, you this morning. Paul's been writing about his adversities. Uh, he wants the the believers in Philippi to understand that what adversity they have faced, they can have joy in it. Here's how he's found joy. But then he wants them to know that as adversity increases, as it turns into more persecution and more suffering in an intense level, he doesn't want them to be surprised. So if you think about it, there's really, and, and, I, and maybe some of you in this room began your journey with Christ this way, um, Many people come to Christ and they they think, okay, so now that I have faith in Jesus, the Son of God, and my sins are forgiven, everything's going to be perfect. Now, sometimes in our generation, we've kind of made believism kind of easy. We've kind of made it a little easy to to feel like you've fully committed your life to Christ, and and yet we don't always perhaps share the, the true reality, and that is, no, you just entered warfare. And so Jesus would even tell us, he would tell us in John chapter 16, verse 33, he says, I've told you these things so that in me, you may have peace. He says, in this world, you're going to have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. So if you, if you began a faith walk with Jesus, thinking everything in your life was now going to be perfect, you, you need to know what Jesus said up front. Look, it's not going to always be easy, but I am always going to be with you. And then Paul would, would take where uh, he wants to 
eliminate any surprises for the church in Philippi. And they know they're going to, they're going to suffer for Christ, but then Paul would want them not to be surprised by what's still to come. And so he, along the lines of Peter, uh, his fellow apostle, would go along this line. Now watch what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 4. He says, Dear friends, do not be what? Surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Now that's Peter's words to Christians. That's Paul's idea in these last four verses of chapter 1. He doesn't want the believers to be surprised that they're going to go through some fiery trials as though something strange were happening. It's not strange because it's, it's, happened, it's happened through every work of God from the Old Testament through the New Testament. Even the prophets we see, we'll see a little bit later, it affected them. So Paul wants to give them this, remove this element of surprise. And he's going to talk this morning about citizenship. So I'm titling today's teaching, The Joy of Citizenship. And we're talking about citizenship in heaven, being a citizen of heaven while on earth. And Paul's going to talk about uh, how to deal with living in these two worlds in the tension that there is between living as a citizen of earth and a citizen of heaven now as a follower of Christ and how we work with joy in that. So Paul's addressing that issue this morning. And I think he would say to us, Victory Family Church, church of this generation, do not be surprised at the fiery trials that you face. Do not be surprised what the next announcement will be at the next press conference. Don't be surprised by these things because they are a part of the tension between living as a citizen of heaven and a citizen of earth. So we're going to pick up beginning in verse number 27. We're going to read just a part of verse 27 right now. Paul says this, whatever happens... Whatever happens, no matter what's about to take place, no matter what has happened, what is happening, or what is about to happen, whatever happens, here's what you do as a citizen of heaven. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. We'll finish verse 27 in just a moment. You say, Pastor, where are you getting citizenship out of all of this this morning? Well, it has to do with that word conduct. The word conduct, it's, it's the Greek word, and I'll see if I can do it justice in pronouncing it. The Greek word for conduct right there is politiomai. Politiomai. It's where we get the word politics. It's where we get the word governing from that word in the Greek. So Paul says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy. Govern yourself in a way as a citizen of heaven that is worthy of the message of the gospel. So the first truth about joy as a citizen of heaven on earth is this. Paul would say, with joy, act like a Christian. I mean, that's as simple as I could make it. <laughs> act like a Christian. You can't just blend in. You can't just, uh, you can't just go along with the crowd. In fact, Paul would write to us in Romans 12, don't conform to the patterns of this world. Be transformed. To conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel is to live like the gospel is real. 
And let's just remind ourselves what the gospel is. The gospel is this. Jesus, the Son of God, died for the sin of mankind. He was buried in a grave for three days. He arose from the grave, and he's coming again. That's the gospel message. And Paul says in, other, in, in Romans that that message is the power to save anybody who believes. And Paul tells us right here in Philippians, he says, Guys, as a citizen of heaven, govern yourself in such a way that you elevate the gospel. That you live like the gospel has truly changed your life. Wow. What does Paul tell us in Corinthians, his letter to the Corinthians? We're a new creation when we're born again. The old is gone and the new has come. We're told that we died to the sin nature and we've come alive to the spirit of Christ Jesus. There's a transformation that's taken place. And as much as we try to blend ourselves into community and culture and make the gospel acceptable by blending in, we're, we're, we're missing the opportunity of the power of the gospel to change lives. Because if some people will look at people in the church and say, you know what, they're not any different than I am. Why do I need to sacrifice all this? Why do I need to give all this stuff up and give my allegiance to Jesus if I can just keep being like I am? Can I just tell you, church, that's not on them. That's on us. Paul says, live in such a way to honor the gospel that you literally have been changed and transformed. Now, there's going to be tension now because you're not the same you and you're not the same as the world system. You don't have a world system view. You now have a biblical worldview, and that's going to create some tension. So Paul says, look, as a, as a, a citizen of heaven while you're living on this earth, the first thing you got to do, you, you got to act like a Christian. You got to act like somebody who truly believes Jesus is the Son of God that he is king of kings and that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And, and, and you live that way under his lordship now, not in the future. So he would say, live in a way and in a manner. Second Corinthians 5, Paul would tell us this. He says, we are Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. What is that appeal? Be reconciled to God through Christ. The message our world needs is this. You can be reconciled to your heavenly father through Jesus. And Paul says, we're here for that reason. We are citizens of heaven, Christ's ambassadors. We are the voice of Jesus to our generation. We are the hands of Jesus to our generation. We are the face of Jesus to our generation. We are the representation of the power of the risen Son of God to our generation. The power that he has to change and to transform lives. The power he has to break the yoke of addictions and sin off of individuals and families. 
We represent that. When the world thinks different, we are the voice. You know, that's what an ambassador does, right? We have ambassadors to different parts of the world, and they go, they're citizens of the United States, but they live in that country, and their sole purpose as an ambassador to that country is to represent the interests of the United States in that nation. To intercede when there's conflict. To express the beliefs or the desires of the United States as an ally to this nation. And as an ambassador for Christ. That's who we are. So Paul says, look, as a citizen of heaven, what people around you need more than your opinion, more than your politics and your political views, what they need is a worthy representation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That Christians aren't just talk. Christians are transformed. And we live in that fashion. We pick up then back in 27, verse 27. He says, so conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then he says, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know two things right here we're going we're to focus in on. I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit striving together. Standing and striving as one for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved in that by God. Paul's talking about now the idea that there's going to be suffering that comes for those who live according to the gospel in this lifetime. Second truth he gives us here then out of that is this. With joy, advance the gospel. Not only live it, but advance it. Take ground for the kingdom of Christ with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not with your ideologies and your philosophies, but the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul speaks about standing firm and striving together against those elements of darkness and deception that oppose the truth of the gospel. Satan is the instigator of opposition against the truth of God's word. I mean, it's, it's been his mode of operation from the beginning. In Genesis 3, when he slithers up and approaches Eve standing in front of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil... His first tactic is this, did God really say that you were not to eat of this tree? Did God really say? And from that point forward, every element that Satan uses to open an inroad into a life, into a family, into a community, and into a culture begins with attacks on truth. What is truth? And culturally right now, there's a lot of confusion about what is true. Satan is at work. He's at work deceiving, manipulating truth. So Paul says, look, as an ambassador of Christ, as a, as a, as a follower of Christ, as a citizen of heaven on this earth, you're going to have to advance the gospel. You're not here for potlucks. 
You're here to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. For it is what is the hope of every man, woman, boy, and girl in this generation right now. All those people you see on the news, rioting and demonstrating, the gospel is the hope. The confusion and the chaos around the coronavirus and whether it's masks or no masks, vaccine or no vaccine, the hope is the gospel of Jesus Christ because in the end, Jesus Christ fulfills his purpose. He comes again and he establishes his kingdom on this earth for a 1,000 year reign before he just goes ahead and creates a whole new heaven and a whole new earth for his people to dwell in. It is the gospel that is the hope right now. And my politics, and and guys, I am grateful for a nation where we have the privilege to vote and we have the privilege and the right to, to elect our leadership. And we have the privilege and the right to believe and to act on what we believe when it comes to politics and and policy. But politics and policy do not last through eternity. They will pass with this earth. I do what I know to do when I get the opportunity to vote and to participate in the system. And for some of us to advance the gospel means I got to get involved in that. And I got to take the gospel into my politics. So I'm going to put myself in a position maybe to to run for a school board or, or, or something in the community to get involved. But for all of us, it means our objective is we speak truth. And it is God's word that is the truth that's going to change lives. So the enemy attacks truth. So who will be the voice? How will those people we see, the masses on television, how will they come to know truth? How will your kids within your own living room come to know truth? Or your neighbor? Or your relatives? Paul says, as a citizen of heaven, we are responsible to advance the gospel. So he says these two terms. He says, stand firm and strive together. To stand firm means to stand on God's word. Do not waver from it. My friends, there is an attack on God's word. There are so-called Christians, there are so-called believers in Christ that now question whether the word of God is authentic, whether it is authoritative, whether it is divinely inspired, whether it is inerrant, without errors. And so they will say, you can believe this part, but not this part. Friends, that's just an open door where the enemy has slithered up and said, you know what, did God really say? And then somebody's given him an audience to let him talk into their ear. The time has come where you will have to decide, do you believe God's word is genuine, real, authoritative? It is the eternal, unchanging word of God. It is the rule of life for you and your family. Or is there something else that could be added to or taken from it? Because we're, we're in a time, guys, I'm just going to tell you, I'm, I'm not saying this as a prophet or anything else. I think it's just the signs of the times. Uh, things have shifted. And we're all waiting for the day it goes back to normal. But let's just be honest, church. Nothing is ever going to be the way it was six months ago. It can be better. Or it can be worse. 
but it won't go back. And here's what the Lord, I believe, has shown me. That there have been two, two doors, two gateways into our world that have been opened in these last five to six months. God has opened a door for the greatest revival that the earth has ever experienced. Some would call it the third great awakening. What has happened has not stopped the church. What has happened, people were frustrated that the government wouldn't let us gather in groups of less than, or more than 10 or whatever, so we, we had to shut, shut services. Guys, I got to tell you, I saw that as a gift from God. I saw it as an opportunity for me to get some stuff squared away that was just church. It was just churchy. Didn't have anything to do with the spirit. I think he's done that with the church to just say, look, let's just trim the fat. Let's get down to what the church truly is. The citizens of heaven advancing the gospel. So God's opened an incredible door for revival. But at the same time, in these last five to six months, Satan has opened some doors over this world and, and particularly over our nation right now, meant to stop that revival, meant to give access to the principalities and powers and the authorities in high places to change the culture, to, to change the, 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 the foundation of and the core and the climate of our nation spiritually. Again, this is not fighting with people we see on TV with protest signs. This is fighting a spiritual battle. This is spiritual warfare. And God has opened a door to revival. Satan has opened a door to shut that down as best he can. And the hope is, I've told you this before, the hope of Jesus or the hope of the world is Jesus. The hope of Jesus is who? Well, I guess I got to be saying it more, don't I? The church. The hope of Jesus is the church. He gave us his Holy Spirit to do what he does till he comes back again. So Paul says, look, you're going to have to stand firm. You, you choose to believe the truth of God's word and that it is unchanging. You're going to be called a bigot. You're going to be called closed-minded. You're going to be called foolish and ignorant. You're going to be called all kinds of things, and you're going to be ostracized in many circles, and that's just going to intensify, church. I don't mean that. I don't, I, I don't want to be a Debbie Downer, but I'm just going off what Jesus said. Matthew 24 and 25, he said, look, it's just as, as I'm preparing for my return, these things are just going to intensify like labor pains until finally it's going to be so intense that, boom, I'm coming back. So I'm not, you know, I'm just telling you what Jesus has said. I'm basing it off that. I just know things aren't going to go back to normal. There's a revival ready to happen if the church is ready to be the conduit. But Satan is also ready to attack. So we stand firm on God's word. There's going to be a time now and a place where, where you're going to have to decide, no, I stand. I stand on God's word. I don't, I don't care what legislation is passed. I, I don't care what, what people think and they want to make it. Say, you know why the gospel is so offensive to people? Because it demands that there is one Christ, Jesus, and not me. And that's offensive to people. Because the sin nature says it's all about me. That's what sin is, right? It's self-rule. So man's nature says, no, I, I'm the rule. Nobody can tell me what I can't or can't do. And yet the gospel comes along and says, look, 
There is one Lord, and every knee will bow one day to him. So that's offensive. Now, you take that reality, and you connect it to the reality that every time you open your eyes and look at someone, you've offended them in this culture, that everybody's offended by anything, and you throw your adamant holding and truth to the gospel, you're not going to be popular, friend. Being most popular. Toward you, it's toward the spirit of the truth, which is Christ. But you're going to be the, the recipient. That's what Paul is trying to say. Look, church, don't be surprised. With Peter, he says, look, don't be surprised at the fiery trial. So, so stand firm. But then Paul also says this second truth. He says, strive together. Not only stand firm for you on the truth, but strive together. That word strive together, it's two, it's two words in English, but it's, it's one compound word in uh, the Greek language, which it was written in. It says the, the Greek word is, I know I was going to mess this up. I've been practicing it for two days now. Suna, sunath, uh, sunathelo. Forget it. Here's what it means. <laughs> the first three letters, soon, talk about union or togetherness. The second word of the compound word is athleo. It's where we get the word athlete. It is the idea of standing firm and striving together like a team. Together advancing. So you know what he's telling the church? Look, as these things intensify, you guys stand together. Don't separate and don't become uh, broken and don't let, this, don't let unity be shattered among you. In Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews would say, look, don't stop meeting together, especially as the day draws near. Advance the gospel together. You know what a team does? If the Dallas Cowboys get to get back on the field with a quarterback this year, you know what their objective is? Move the ball down the field. Advance the ball, regroup, and advance again. Regroup. Pick up the ball, advance again. Every Sunday when we come together in here to worship and to pray and to grow in Christ, we are gathering in our huddle, if you will, for the purpose of not staying huddled together, but for the purpose of going out and moving the ball of the gospel further down the field. Not just standing firm on truth, but taking back ground that the enemy has stolen. All the lie and all the deception that is hovering over and, and controlling the, the atmosphere of our culture and our nation right now, all of that can be pushed back. Why? Because the word of God is light that pierces through darkness. Where's the team that's going to advance the gospel? Paul says it's you, it's us, the citizens of heaven who are going to advance the gospel. Stay connected. Man, here's a fear that, well, I'm, I'm going to back up. It's not a fear I have. It's, it is a concern. It's a concern many pastors have. It's a concern that uh, many in the church world can foresee. And that is that uh, with the quarantine and the opportunities now for so much more uh, online, digital church presence, 
that people are going to become very comfortable in that fashion. I'm grateful for the technology and the opportunities we have. We have more people watching our services either live or a little bit later in the day than we have ever sitting in this room. So I'm grateful for the opportunity. But those resources are best when you can't participate live. But they cannot replace the life of a connected believer to the body of Christ. It's where the life and the spirit of Christ flow is when we come together. Next week, we're going to talk about unity as we get into Philippians chapter 2. But we got to guard ourselves and we got to stay unified in this idea that we are advancing the gospel. And then let's pick up in verse 29 and 30 now. Paul then goes on now and he says, For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, watch this, it's not just believing in Christ, but also to say it with me. Suffer for him. To suffer for him. Since you were going through the same struggle you saw that I had and now hear that I still have. Paul says, look, you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. You're acting on the gospel of Jesus Christ. You're living out the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's an offense to people. You are advancing the gospel. It's an offense to people. And you are going to suffer. Who signed up? We really probably didn't know that part of the, we probably didn't get that part of the sinner's prayer. If anybody actually prayed that as a part of that sinner's prayer with us. But it's the reality. So like Peter would say, don't be surprised. It's going to happen. Here's, here's what's crazy. Here's what's crazy about this. That word granted right there, notice what it said. It said, uh, this is a sign to them that they, for it has been granted to you on behalf of it has been granted. You know what that word granted is? That is the word uh, from charisma, charismata, which is the word for gift, grace, and favor. Do you know what Paul has just said? Suffering for Jesus is a gift from God that he graces you with. Ah, what? That doesn't win a lot of souls. We want Jesus to fix our problems, not put a smack dab in the middle of them. But Paul says it's actually a gift. A gift to suffer for Christ. Now, Paul's not talking about something he doesn't know and understand, right? Two weeks ago, we outlined all of those hardships and adversities Paul had faced up to the writing of the book of Philippians. So Paul is a man who knows what he's talking about, and he's figured out it's God's gift. It's God's grace. God is actually favoring me with it. So this, I wrestled. Lisa can tell you, I told her yesterday morning, I didn't, I didn't have this finished until late yesterday afternoon, and I'm usually done by Thursday. And then the rest of the weekend is just refreshing and and I struggle with this. So, Lord, how do I uh, explain that? How do we get grace out of suffering? Let me show you. I'm just going to show you what, what I believe he's given me, and it, it's all straight from, from his word. Enduring suffering for Christ has some incredible payoffs. One, the gift, the gift of suffering produces Christ-like character. 
And God is far more interested in your character than he is your comfort. Why? Because you are living as a citizen who is to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. And you can't do that unless you've got the character of Christ at work. James says, Consider a pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature, complete, and not lacking anything. Second thing, the gift of suffering unlocks greater levels of God's grace. God gives us grace unmeasured and unlimited. For it's by grace any of us have been saved. But notice what 1 Peter 2, 20 says. For what credit is there if you sin and are punished or suffer for that? But when you do what is good and suffer, if you will endure, if you won't bail out on Jesus, you will have favor from God. You'll have the favor of God. The gift of suffering is rewarded richly. Jesus himself in Matthew 5, 11 says, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. And notice this, you're in some good company. For in the very same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Everybody who has acted in accordance with the truth of God's word and proclaimed it and declared it and stood upon it has suffered. But there's a reward. In Revelation, we see that uh, there's a group, there's, there's many people from every tribe, tongue, nation, language in, in heaven. But we see a group of people who John saw had been beheaded for their faith. And it says that Jesus made them governors of the nations in the millennium. They were rewarded with high, high privilege. Why? Because they endured the suffering for Christ. Another one, the gift of suffering elevates Christ in us. Romans 8, 17 says, Now if we are children, then we are heirs. We love this. We are heirs, heirs of God. Cha-ching, bring it on. However, notice what it says. We are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ if we share in His sufferings in order that we may also share in His glory. It takes us back to the words of Paul about Jesus. For the joy set before him, he suffered the cross. And then lastly, the gift of suffering produces a greater joy. 1 Peter 4.13, But rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. So, man... I like to encourage you. That's part of why I've wrestled with this this weekend. <laughs> but church, I love you enough that I don't want any of us to be surprised. Things have shifted. They will not be like they have been. 
There is opportunity for great revival and there is opportunity for intense attack on the Christian faith and the gospel of Jesus Christ. The day of being able to easily blend in to the world and still carry a fish bumper sticker it's going to it's going to close it's going to close so let's don't be surprised let's be ready let's be ready to stand firm and strive together because i know this i'm going to read it to you like i have it in my notes here you will never suffer for Christ without the presence, power, and provision of Christ himself. You will never be without the presence, power, and provision of Jesus Christ in any place that your faith comes under attack. He's never let anyone out. Ask Peter. Ask Paul. Ask Daniel. Ask Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Think about these boys. They're Hebrew boys. They're, they're living in a foreign land, Persia. Yet they're citizens of Jerusalem, Israel. And so they, they are citizens of another country living in a foreign country. They have won favor with the king of this godless culture of Babylon. They have respected his authority. They have done what they needed to do to prove themselves to be quality young men. And so he's elevated them. They've not fought him. They've not spoken out against him. In fact, they're creating quite a stir in the fact that they are so holy to God and yet so honored by the king that uh, everybody's got to figure out a way to get them to stop. When they are challenged, however, to disobey the command of God, they draw a line. In essence, king, we're here for you because this is where God has us right now. But you've asked us to do something that violates the command of our God. You know what the king wanted? He wanted at the sound of the trumpet, everybody in the kingdom to stop whatever they were doing and kneel down and bow to him. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego knew enough about the Old Testament law and word of God that, that they're told there in the Ten Commandments, you shall have no other God before me. So it's impossible for them they're going to have to stand firm. And, and here's the cool thing. You know what they're doing? They're striving together. I just envision it. The trumpet blows and everybody drops to their knees and here's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Side by side. Striving together. They stand. King says, all right, that's it. Throws them in the fiery furnace. Looks down in there, sees four people in the furnace. Why? Because you will never suffer for the cause of the kingdom of God without the power, presence, and provision of Jesus Christ with you. Go to the bank on it.
Ask Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You know what happens when they come out of the furnace, when they come out of that place of suffering? Which, by the way, they weren't consumed in. When they come out, the king says, oh, wow. Your God is real. We will worship. Everybody is to bow a knee to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, that revival lasted all of about probably three minutes because it's a pagan culture that needs a revival, needs, just needs a deliverance. But in the moment, it caught the attention of the king. When you and I decide that we're all in on this thing with Jesus and his truth cannot be compromised, we stand. And we stand together and we advance the gospel. We will meet some resistance. But we will never meet that resistance without the presence, power, and provision of Jesus Christ with us. And when we do, revival. Revival. When an unregenerate world sees citizens of heaven acting like citizens of heaven, believing the gospel and living it out and coming out of the fire unscathed, they want in. They can believe in that God. Right? So this morning, I'm going to close it up. Man, I got a little too excited there today. It went a little bit longer than I wanted. But this morning, the reality is things are shifting and changing. They will continue to shift and change at an incredible breakneck speed, according to Jesus, till he returns. He is coming again. That reward of enduring is to be caught up and taken with Jesus to be with him forever. You want in on that? You did until you heard this message, right? You were thinking, I'm going to go to church today, and if they talk about Jesus and the cross and the resurrection, I'm going to give my life to Jesus. Now you've put the brakes on for a moment. Wait a minute. You mean I'm going to have to suffer in that? I can only tell you this, friend. You will either suffer it now or you will suffer it for eternity. Now you have the hope of Christ. Then it's too late. Receive Christ. Receive Christ into your heart. Give him the throne, the lordship and the rulership of your life now. And whatever you experience that you think might be unpleasant, you will find his grace working with his presence and his power and his provision. You don't have it now, but you will have it then. For the rest of us who have surrendered our life to Christ, it's time to stand firm, church. It's time to get serious about your faith. It's time to get his serious or more serious about your faith than it is your politics. Vote right. Vote the mind of Christ. Be the voice of Christ. But it's time to get very serious about where we stand. Because anything, any thin line we've walked called the fence, what's shaking and moving in our culture right now, 
is shaking everybody off of the fence, including the church.